In our gospel reading, Jesus said, In this world, you will have tribulation. Period. In this world, you will have tribulation. I've known that my whole life. Um, sounds very familiar. But anytime suffering comes into my life, I am dead shocked by it. It seems like the strangest thing has happened and something's gone terribly off the rails because suffering has entered my life. Suddenly I become demanding. I need to know why is this happening to me? I need to know all the mysteries of God's will and providence to know why and to what end any suffering at all enters into my life. How do you get to that place where you know for sure that the Christian life, like the rest of life, is one of tribulation and suffering, and yet find yourself deeply surprised whenever suffering arises? And then the corollary question to that is what difference does faith in Jesus make for us as we endure and experience suffering? What difference does it make being a Christian when it comes to experiencing suffering. Romans chapter 8 is talking about that, this section of it. The, the whole chapter, which is a very beloved chapter, and it's where we'll be today if you want to grab a Bible and follow along, Romans 8. The chapter is about reassuring Christians in their relationship with God, that we really are safe and secure with Him. And the first half of the chapter was kind of about how in the face of guilt, that we're still okay with God because of his grace in our lives and because of what Jesus has done for us. Uh, the second half of the chapter is in the face of suffering. How can we be reassured that our connection to God is solid and that we're okay with him? How can we be reassured of that when our lives are so full of suffering? And that's what we're going to think about together today. Um, he's been leading up to this in the passage just before the one that we're going to read. You know, in verse 17, he had said um, that we're heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, uh, so that we may also be glorified with him. We suffer with him. He says the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. And he says in verse 22, the whole creation groans and suffers. Uh, under the curse on the world because of our rebellion. And then in verse 23, even Christians groan in the world. Even though we have been reconciled to God, our lives are still lives of suffering. And in this passage, we're going to see that even God himself groans in our suffering, that the Holy Spirit in us groans with us and for us under the suffering that we endure in this world. And what the focus is going to be is how it is that we uh, are comforted in the face of such suffering. So let me pray for us, and then we'll hear uh, Romans 8 read. Father, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to you, uh, that we might not only have a right understanding of what you say here, but a right experience of it, that you would uh, let us uh, feel what it means to be comforted by your Holy Spirit in us, and by the hope we have for our future. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 8, verses 26 through 30. 
Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. I'll give you another Calvin and Hobbes uh, cartoon. In this one, at the beginning of the cartoon, Calvin is getting dressed in the morning. And he pulls on his underoos that seem special to him and stands in front of the mirror. And because he's got his great special underwear on, he's ready to face the day with confidence, bolts out the door, and then the day deteriorates pretty fast and pretty comprehensively. You know, he misses the bus, first of all, and then he gets bullied in the hallway at his locker, and then uh, the bag he had his show-and-tell project in had broken in the bottom and fallen through, so he didn't have it. He didn't get picked on the playground for baseball. He sat in gum when the teacher asks the question. Everybody had their hand up with the answer except him. And likewise throughout the day and he comes home reflecting with Hobbes and he says you know Hobbes some days even my lucky rocket underpants don't help even my lucky rocket underpants don't help now it's a trivial start because I needed something to cut tension because it's such a serious subject otherwise today because we're talking about suffering and Truth is, everybody suffers. No one escapes suffering. It is uh, the nature of life in the veil of tears. Uh, this is a broken world. We're broken people in it, and so we suffer. Um, the point of the passage is, what good does it do to be a Christian in regard to suffering? How does it help to have faith in Jesus Christ uh, as we try to face suffering in our lives? What comfort is there? To be given and that's what we're going to look at first though i want us to look at uh, false attempts to comfort to deal with suffering in a way that's supposed to be helpful but winds up not being helpful you know outside the faith uh, you'll often get kind of the stoic nietzschean approach and nietzsche's famously i think misquoted saying what doesn't whatever doesn't kill me makes me stronger which it makes no sense at all as far as I can understand. I mean, football coaches like to use it to tell you that uh, pain is just weakness leaving the body. But that seems like coach speak to me and not uh, anything that's really descriptive of life as it is. Uh, the bluster of not minding pain because uh, somehow you're above it or somehow you're too tough for it or something like that doesn't doesn't match up with any of our experiences in life. Then there's the Eastern idea, which I don't know if it's meant to comfort, but it's a, it's a means of escape from pain. Eastern religious idea, which is that uh, this world is illusory and pain and suffering are illusory as well. 
and that the path forward for human enlightenment is to detach yourself from any kind of desire for things good or bad. And that once you are removed from desire, suffering can't touch you anymore and you'll be absorbed without individual personality, you'll be absorbed into the all soul. And it's not a philosophical objection to that, but I would just say that my suffering doesn't feel illusory. That doesn't seem like an adequate description of what I experience in my life. There are a number of sort of quasi-Christian explanations for suffering or advice given in suffering. Uh, things that have some ring of truth to them but aren't really a full biblical picture or a correct biblical picture. One is uh, prosperity teaching, which in some places is overt and is the message that's proclaimed from the pulpit. And other places it's covert, where it's something that we habitually believe, even if we would uh, tell you that we don't believe it. Uh, the prosperity teaching is this, if you love and trust God enough, then you'll be spared from calamity. If your faith is strong enough, if your obedience is complete enough, you'll be spared from calamity. Bad things won't happen to you. Job's friends in the Old Testament believed this. You know, when they came to comfort him, they did way better than most of us would do by sitting quietly with him for a long time. But then when they talked, they basically said, well, what did you do? Like, what did you do to cause this? Because clearly you did something or it wouldn't be this way. That's prosperity teaching. The disciples of Jesus did a similar thing when they saw the man born blind in John chapter 9. They, their question to Jesus was uh, what they thought an obvious question. Well, who sinned? This man or his parents? Because they figured if he's born blind, it's because he's doing it wrong. Or his parents are doing it wrong. Or something, because if he was doing it right, he wouldn't be suffering. But the passage we're looking at today doesn't say that um, God causes everything to go well for people who love him. It says he works all things together for good for those who love him. And um, it's a very different thing. God doesn't cause all things to go well for Christians, no matter how much or how well they love him. He uses our suffering. He doesn't make our circumstances great. Uh, you know this from experience, but you deep in your heart sometimes want to believe differently. If you were just doing it better, if you just loved him more, then everything would go a lot better in your life and circumstances. And that's a heresy, right? That's not true. It's not biblical. Uh, but you see, you know, hints of this when we sort of try to understand God's hand in our lives by using the phrase, um, say something is a God thing. Something happened in my life, well... I was uh, sick and I got better and the doctors couldn't explain it. That was a God thing, we will say. It's, we're describing a time when we see God's, uh, God's hand and intervention in our lives uh, in a less veiled way, where it seems more obvious that God is at work doing something. But I've never heard anyone talk about a God thing being anything other than uh, a favorable change in circumstances. Something all of a sudden went great for me. I got well, I got a promotion. Um, the thing that I was worried about stopped being a problem. That was a God thing. But God things don't usually extend to suffering. 
in our lives. Um, what our passage here is saying is that God's work in our lives and what he's up to in our lives, when we try to trace his finger in our lives, runs hard through the path of suffering, not just a favorable circumstance. I have a friend who's caring for a wife who has dementia. That's, of course, getting worse. And um, he's been very generous and diligent in caring for her and got a diagnosis a couple of weeks ago that he has uh, prostate cancer. And his big worry is, I don't, want to, I don't want to die before my wife because she needs me to care for her. Is that a God thing? Do you feel confident you're tracing, you know, the mysteries of God's providential work in our lives through that enough to say that's a God thing? There are people in our town who are uh, in jail waiting a jury trial. We haven't been able to have jury trials for six months and we probably won't be able to for maybe that long again just because of the considerations of uh, uh, the coronavirus. Um, and there are presumably some of these people who are innocent and have a reasonable defense, but they're stuck in jail, not able to afford their bond uh, because we can't have jury trials now. Is this, uh, is this a God thing in their lives? Um, do you feel confident that you can trace this is what God is doing in their lives? Do you have advice that if they only loved God more or believed better that this wouldn't be happening to them? Um, the prosperity teaching is... Uh, harmful and erroneous. It's not the comfort we're given in suffering. It's that if we would only love and trust God more, things would go better. A corollary of that is the belief that we usually harbor, which is if, if my suffering has something to do with what I've done, if it's my fault that I'm suffering, that um, my pain is not legitimate. That my suffering is... Uh, to be dismissed by other people and probably even by me because it's my fault. You made your bed, now lie in it. And God does not at all uh, separate out a category of self-inflicted suffering and say, I'm not going to work in that for your good, Christian. Suffering is suffering. Uh, you could probably make the case with most of your suffering that you are in some way complicit in it. Um, and if you can, then you would have to say, God isn't loving me and shepherding me and working in my life through this suffering if it's self-inflicted. That's a fallacy. That's the thought of someone who thinks that they have a standing with God because of their good behavior, which none of us has. Right. Um, another thing we do as Christians is false comfort is we minimize our pain. We say, well, I, I'm suffering, but it's not as bad as some people. I mean, I sure don't have it as bad as Job had it, right? So, and the implication of that is, therefore, um, I shouldn't feel pain. I shouldn't uh, acknowledge my suffering. I shouldn't uh, deal with it. I should just be able to dismiss it uh, because other people have suffered worse than I have. You should be, you know, as tough as Mr. T saying, pain don't hurt right? Pain don't hurt. But that's not a Christian position at all. It certainly wasn't Jesus's position as a man of sorrows, uh, who was frequently a man in tears. 
in his life. As one uh, thoughtful Christian writer said, you don't have to go to Auschwitz to suffer. All of our lives involve suffering. And then lastly, Christian comfort is not derived from platitudes, uh, from easy answers, often using the verse in our passage today that God works all things together for good for those who love him. Um, these things said glibly are not comforting, uh, but they minimize pain and they're superficial. They're a, a light healing of people's wounds. Nor is it appropriate for us to say to each other that if you really understood what God was doing in your life, you would say that your suffering is actually a good thing, not a bad thing. That is not a Christian belief or position either. That's not biblical. Um, evil is evil in God's world. Suffering is suffering in God's world. It's because the world is broken. It's the reason Jesus came to redeem the world because it's not okay that evil and suffering are in the world. Uh, we don't say it's really good. Even if God does something good with our suffering, it doesn't make the suffering good. So those are quasi-Christian faults, Christian comforts. What's the true comfort we're given in this passage? Uh, two things. Uh, one is that God is with us in our suffering, and the second is that God gives us hope in our suffering. The first one is he's with us. In verse 26, it says, uh, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. That's the Holy Spirit of God who is present in the lives of Christians. We do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So just as the creation groans and we groan under the weight of the curse, the Holy Spirit, God himself groans with us. He groans with us. This is not an explanation of the mysteries of God and his plans and what he's doing in the world uh, so that we can say, I know what God is doing. This happened so that could happen. You know, causation, uh, arrows drawn perfectly. We can't do that. But instead of explaining the mysteries of providence to us, uh, God enters into suffering with us. He enters into suffering with us. He shares himself instead of sharing an explanation of things. Uh, we, we're familiar with this because it's what God the Son did, Jesus Christ, in coming to share our humanity, to live under the suffering world in the veil of tears, to be a man of sorrows who is acquainted with grief, as he is described. We have an empathetic God who knows what it means to suffer and who walks through suffering with us. So what we have is not the help of a philosophical answer, but we have the help of a friend who loves us walking through suffering with us. Doesn't answer every question, doesn't make suffering not hurt, but I don't know of many greater comforts than having the God who loves us so deeply walk through our pain with us, and that's what we're promised. There's a ton that we don't know about suffering as Christians. It's, you know, we know what God has revealed about himself and about his plans, and that's true, what he's told us, but we don't know everything. And when it comes to the question of why we suffer and what the point of suffering is and things like that, we don't know very much at all. We don't know very much at all. We don't even know how to pray about it, he says, that the Holy Spirit helps because we don't know what to pray for as we ought. But the Holy Spirit does help us 
He's with us. It's not a way out of suffering. It's not a way out of pain. But it's the God who loves us walking through suffering with us. It's what you want from a dear friend when you're suffering, isn't it? Someone to be with you. And uh, the dearest friend walks with us through our suffering. The Holy Spirit with us. The second part of the comfort we have as Christians, though, is, is hope. Is that our suffering isn't pointless and our suffering isn't permanent. It's uh, what he says in this famous verse that you know gets embroidered on pillows and things. Verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That God is at work through our sufferings uh, to a good end. Now, that needs a little bit of explanation because it could be misunderstood pretty easily. I mean, first of all, is it saying for those who love God enough, God is at work using their suffering to a good end. And no, it's not. Because the people who love God enough to deserve his favor, to deserve him using your circumstances in life to your good, that's the empty set, right? That, that describes nobody. None of us love God well enough, thoroughly enough, to deserve or merit his work in our trials to conform us to the image of Jesus. This isn't a probationary test. This is a comforting promise, right? If you are a Christian, you love God. You know, you've been brought back into peace with him and relationship with him. You love him because he loved you first. It's not a test of how perfectly well you love him. And the other thing that needs to be explained is what is good? Like he works together for good for those who love him. Define how? Like good as in terms of I get what I want or good in terms of he gets what he wants and his purpose. And yeah, guess what? It's B. It's what he wants. It's what he says in verse 29 is that he's using our sufferings in a process of conforming us to the image of his son, making us like Jesus. Like that's what he's doing in Christians' lives. That uh, this whole life that we live now is a pilgrimage towards heaven. And in that pilgrimage, he is using our suffering to shape us and mature us and change us so that we'll be fit for the new creation in the resurrection. So we'll be uh, fit for life with him. That we'll be like Jesus uh, physically and in our character. And the way that he makes us like Jesus in our character until the resurrection is primarily through suffering. I mean in a way that I don't even understand, writer of the Hebrews says that even Jesus, who was perfect, learned obedience through suffering in his experience on earth as a human being. He learned obedience through suffering. How much more should we expect uh, that to be the process of our lives too? Because if we're going to be like Jesus, we're going to have to live a life that was like the life Jesus lived. And that was a life of suffering. It's the way of the cross, not the way of happiness and success and victory and pleasure uh, mounting up in heaps, but falling into the ground to die so that we can be born again and bear new fruit. The way of the cross is the Christian life. It is the Christian life. Uh, the way of success is not the Christian life. It's an exception when it happens, and it's not that useful to us 
when it happens. Honestly, I think you could all say that you're not very urgent in prayer when things are going awesome in your life. But we're being prepared for a glory. He uses the word glory a lot. I don't use the word glory much, but he he's describing what's in store for us. Our, our lived experience in the next life is going to be one where, with resurrected bodies and souls that are fixed and characters that are fixed, relationships that are fixed. And this true humanness has a, a deep glory to it. You know, in a couple of the Gospels, the account is given of Jesus going up on what's called the Mount of Transfiguration, where he goes, takes Peter and James and John, and we're on the top of the mountain. Jesus is transfigured before them, which basically means he starts shining uh, with this radiant light, and it's beautiful but overwhelming, and the disciples fall down on their faces and can't look at him. And the idea often has been that the disciples were getting a glimpse of Jesus's divinity when they saw this, that this is a uh, picture of his divine nature that's veiled in human flesh uh, while he's with them. But it's as plausible a suggestion to say that what they observed was Jesus's true humanity, that humanity apart from the curse is glorious, radiant, uh, unbelievably different than the experience that we have now as human beings on this side of the veil. Uh, that the glory that we anticipate is, as Paul says here, not worthy to be compared with the sufferings that we experience now. This is our hope, right? It doesn't, doesn't mean that we avoid suffering now. It may mean that we have more suffering now. But the suffering is a pointless suffering. It's suffering with the hope that God is going to use it to bring us home to him and make us truly and fully human for the first time. All we see now is, to use Edith Schaefer's analogy, is like the back of the tapestry, right? Uh, God's weaving something beautiful, but on a tapestry, you look at the back, and it's just it's pandemonium. You, you can't make out anything of the true image. But on the front side, what you see is beautiful, and we only see the back side of the tapestry now. But we're promised that our suffering is not meaningless and pointless. We have hope in it because of this. And that hope is based, and this is unavoidable, on God's certain plan for our lives. God's certain plan for our lives from before time to the end of history, God has a plan that he is working out, that he is in control of his world enough to work out to bring us home to him, transformed into the likeness of Jesus. Right, so he goes through this very theologically complex argument to reassure us that we're safe with him and he is going to bring us home. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. All God's work, things that he says he has done and is doing and will do, that give us comfort that we're secure in him, give us reassurance. Now, if you read into this a deterministic scheme, you're misunderstanding it. It's not that we're robots and he is dragging us against uh, our desires to heaven. It's not that we don't uh, make choices that are significant along the way. It's not that because God is in control that this is the best of all possible worlds or any of these uh, caricatures of God's sovereignty that you will hear spread around. Uh, but... 
If you believe God is in control of history, that he has the whole world in his hands, including you and your life and your circumstances, to the extent that he can make promises like the ones he's making here, that I will use your suffering for good in a way that will bring you finally home to me in heaven, if he controls the world to the extent that he can protect you and keep promises like these that he's made, um, and if you believe that this is all his doing and not something you've earned or deserved, that all the credit for your life with God, your security now, and your hope for the future, that all the credit lies with him, and that's what you mean by predestination? Well, you're right. That's what it means. That God is in control of his world so that he can make and keep these promises. And that's what he's doing for us. But he wants us to know that this all depends on his strength and his plan and his faithfulness rather than on ours. Because if we're going to be reassured in the midst of suffering that we are in good standing with God, that he loves us, cares for us, and is bringing us home, then we need something more solid than to say, I've got a fantastic grip on God so I know I'm going to be okay. We need to know that he's got a fantastic grip on us and so we know we're going to be okay. And that's the point that is being made here uh, about God's sovereign providence in our lives. It's not something that's going to answer all your questions from philosophy class. It's something that's going to reassure you in the midst of your suffering that God will not let you go, that he has you, and he will fulfill his plan in your life. So, you know, if you're just on, if God just set up some arbitrary probation system where he can see if you love him well enough to fight your way to heaven, well, good luck to you, because that's not comforting at all. That's just terrifying. But in his grace, he said, I'm going to bring you home to me. And we trust him for that. This is the confidence Joseph had uh, as a believer. This is, you know, in the chap late last chapters of Genesis, famously in chapter 50 of Genesis, Joseph uh, confronts his brothers who had uh, betrayed him and sold him into slavery and been exceptionally cruel to him. You know, it'd be easy enough to blame their father for playing favorites the way he did. But Joseph, at the end of his life, has been made the prime minister of Egypt, and now the lives of his family are dependent on him because of a famine. And so when his brothers uh, come to him and he reveals himself to them and says, I'm Joseph, your brother, they're terrified of him. But his assessment of his life, which has been a pretty terrible life for the most part, is that uh, he said famously, what you did, you intended for evil, but God intended it for good, for the sparing of many lives, as you see today. You intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. And this is what the Christian experiences in hope that even things that are intended for evil, that seem to be meaningless sufferings even, are things in which God has an intention for our good. He has an intention for our good, and we have a hope. So, doesn't mean that evil isn't still evil. It just means that God and his plan uses it for good. So he's with us in our suffering, and he gives us hope in our suffering. Uh, those are the bedrocks that we're given to, to uh, put our weight on in the midst of suffering and perplexity in this life. I'm going to mention a couple of implications, though, about us having this comfort and hope. Uh, one is that we need each other. Uh, the, the Christian life, no matter how well lived, no matter how strong the faith, no matter how deep the obedience, 
is a life of suffering. And none of us suffers well alone. We need each other. It's one of the irritations of the quarantine to me is that, you know, in this young church, the bonds that uh, organically grow to, to uh, bind our lives together as a church body have just been on hold, it seems like, dormant uh, for these months. And I'm very eager to see those bonds growing again because we need each other uh, if we're going to live a life of suffering in this world with faith in Jesus Christ. Um, so, second implication is that having received comfort in our suffering, Jesus turns us out to move toward other people in their suffering, not just inside the church, but in our community, that we're, we're propelled outward to people who are also suffering, to enter into their pain. In some ways, it's why being a Christian makes suffering worse, because you can't just think about your own little silo of suffering anymore. Jesus gives you his compassion and starts making you care about other people who are suffering. Uh, so we've got people who are very lonely here as international students, and we have homeless people who are here, refugees who are here, and uh, a criminal justice system that needs uh, our love and help, uh, all sorts of needs within our community where people suffer, and we're called to move out, even if it's just to our neighbors who we know are grieving or struggling that God turns us out toward our community because we've been comforted in our suffering. I had friends in Alabama who were living a good life. You know, they were uh, fairly rich, good business, comfortable, pretty, children that were healthy, uh, didn't have to worry about a whole lot. And then they dipped their toe into this ministry where uh, they were helping women coming out of prison reintegrate into regular life and turn their world upside down. You know, they've entered into a tremendous amount of suffering that they could have easily avoided, but because they love Jesus and he gave him them his eyes to see this suffering, they moved toward it. Yeah, now their lives are upside down with suffering and all sorts of trials and all sorts of not knowing even how to pray about situations uh, because that's what Jesus does with his people and uh, what he'll do through our church too. We're still very young in this. It's something that I have dreamt and prayed about and longed for to see our church finding ways to be uh, genuine friends to people who are suffering uh, in our community. It's part of the beauty of being in Midtown is things are less varnished here in terms of suffering and uh, God's gonna move us out towards that suffering. You can count on it. And the last implication is uh, this, is that Christians uh, have more to want than optimism. You know, the best people can do if they don't have faith in Jesus Christ in a world of suffering is just try to be optimistic, look for the silver lining in the cloud, you know, have some platitudes, talk about how, you know, other people have it worse than you, and if you count your blessings, you won't feel any suffering and pain, and you know the kind of things people do just to try to feel better in the midst of suffering, and Christians don't have to settle for that. Uh, we can stare suffering in the face. We can endure and walk through the pain because we have something better than optimism. We have hope. We have God himself, the Holy Spirit, walking with us through pain. And we have God's own promise that he will use our suffering to bring us to glory. Now let's pray.
Father, we pray that you would uh, work in our lives as comfort-loving, soft, uh, pampered American Christians uh, to let us face suffering the way that you would have us and that you would turn us out with compassion like that of Jesus to the people around us who are also suffering. Thank you for the hope you've given us of the resurrection. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.